All right, good morning. It's great to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ezra chapter 5 and 6. If you're new with us this morning, we've been making our way through a series on the book of Ezra. And this morning we've landed in Ezra 5 and 6. For reasons I think will become apparent as we study the passage, it doesn't make sense to break up these two chapters. So we're going to try to cover a lot of ground this morning, Ezra 5 and 6. Let's pray, then we'll get to it. Uh, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open up your word. We have confidence that every time we open up your word, you will speak. And so this morning, that is our expectation, that as we open your word, you will speak to us loudly and clearly, that we will hear your voice. We know there's a lot of stuff that is going on in the world right now. And I suspect for a lot of people in this room, there's a lot of things going on in their life right now. And yet in the midst of that, what we need to hear more than anything is your voice speaking. We want to hear from you, Lord. And so we're praying that this morning you would speak loudly and clearly through Ezra 5 and 6, that we would be encouraged and challenged, convicted by your word. At the end of the day, we would leave here with a greater appreciation of who you are and a greater desire to celebrate your goodness. It's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. So back in the day, which at this point is becoming a lot further back in the day, I played high school football for the mighty Sheraton Chargers. Now, I'm not necessarily saying you should be impressed by that, but I will let you know, at the time, the Sheraton Chargers were probably the preeminent high school football program in the bottom two tiers of county in southern Iowa. Now, granted, being the preeminent high school football program in the bottom two tiers of counties in Iowa is a bit like going to the moon and declaring yourself to be the fastest person on the moon. It might be true, but there's not a lot of competition. But nevertheless, we thought we were a big deal at the time. In retrospect, whether we were actually a big deal or not, the one thing I can say with confidence is I thoroughly enjoyed playing high school football. And part of the reason I enjoyed playing is because I really liked playing for our coach, Coach Maimons. Coach Maimons was passionate about football. He was involved in our lives, and he was also very organized. With Coach Maimons, you knew what you were getting from week to week. Tuesday and Wednesday would be hard practices. Thursday would be a light walkthrough before the game. Friday would be game day. And then Mondays after the game would be film day and conditioning. On those Mondays during the season before we went out and did some conditioning work to make sure we were staying in shape, we would watch film or more accurately watch video from the previous week's game. And as we did so, the coaches would pause and rewind and point out things that we'd done well or highlight things that we'd, or point out things that we'd done well or, or point out things that we'd done incorrectly. Now here's the thing, if we lost the previous Friday, those Monday afternoon film sessions were awful. Because if we lost, the coaches were always in a bad mood, and it would take us forever to go through the video because they would stop and seemingly point out every last thing we'd done wrong. And usually when they did so, they were not speaking in their kind and gentle voice. There was oftentimes a fair amount of yelling, sometimes a little bit of language that may have crossed some boundaries. There was a lot of casting blame during those Monday film sessions after a loss. It was not an enjoyable experience. But if we won the game on Friday, and particularly if we won a big game, those Monday film sessions were a ton of fun. Not only were the coaches in a good mood, but as we watched back the game, they would point out all the things that we'd done well and highlight the plays that had made a difference. Monday afternoon film sessions after a victory were always enjoyable. But even on those victory Mondays, the coaches still wanted us to learn. In fact, after we finished watching film of our victory, it would not be uncommon for one of the coaches to stand up and summarize, okay, this is what we did well. And this is what we need to keep doing going forward so we can keep winning games. And actually, that was the whole purpose of reflecting back and watching the last week's game. We looked back in order to better prepare going forward. And on Victory Mondays, we looked back at our victory in hopes that we might replicate what we did well in future games. And actually, that's the point of reference for our passage today. In Ezra chapter 5 and 6, the people of God experienced a huge victory. They finished the work of rebuilding the temple. 
It's a gigantic moment in the history of Israel and a profound moment for the people of God. And that's evidenced by the way that they respond. They respond with great celebration. They know this is a moment of great triumph. The temple is rebuilt and they can properly worship again. In a book that's filled with opposition and setback, the finishing of the rebuilding of the temple is a moment of great triumph for the people of God. In the same way that our high school football team would review film in order to learn from our victories that we might apply lessons for the next game, I think there's great wisdom for us this morning in studying the film, if you will, of Ezra 5 and 6 and seeing what's happening in this chapter and what went right in hopes that we might replicate some of that going forward in our own lives. So that's our task this morning. We're going to study the film here. We're going to look back and see, okay, what happened in Ezra 5 and 6? And we're going to try to figure out how we might apply that going forward. So having said that, more specifically, here's this plan this morning. I want to walk through Ezra 5 and 6 and just make some observations as we make our way through these two chapters. And then I want us to think about, okay, what lessons do we learn in light of what we read in these two chapters? All right, so let's start the film work here. Let's rewind the tape, if you will, and let's look back at Ezra 5 and 6. Now, typically, I would ask you to stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word, but this morning, we're going to be reading in sections. We're not going to read it all at once, and so to avoid this becoming a calisthenics class where I'm saying, get up, sit down, get up, sit down, I'm not going to have you stand today, but I will remind you as we read the Word of God that it is the Word of God, and as such, it's due our reverence. We don't have to stand in order to remember that. It's often helpful to stand to remember that. But this morning as we read, let me just remind you, it is the Word of God. All right, so we're going to start here in Ezra 5, verses 1 and 2. Word of God says this, beginning verse 1. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who are in Judah and Jerusalem, in the name of the God of Israel who is over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that's in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Now, in order to understand the significance of what's happening in verses 1 and 2, it's probably helpful for us to reset where we are in the book of Ezra. In Ezra 1, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you probably know the drill at this point. The people are coming back from exile into the land of Judah. In 586 BC, the Babylonians had captured the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. In the process, they also took many of the people captive and into exile in Babylon. But in 539 BC, the Persian king Cyrus defeated the Babylonians. And he made a decree, and this is what we saw in chapter 1, that the people could come back to the land and they could begin rebuilding the temple. In chapter 1 to 3, that's what we saw happening. The people are returning from exile and they're beginning to re- the work of rebuilding the temple. But in chapter 4, which is what we looked at last week, the rebuilding of the temple came to a dramatic halt. The people of God faced significant opposition, and because of that opposition, the work of rebuilding the temple ceased. From what we can piece together, given the various time markers throughout the book of Ezra, it seems that this temple work was ceased for a period of about 10 to 15 years. And that's where we're picking up the story at the beginning of chapter 5. The rebuilding of the temple has been on pause for at least a decade maybe up to a decade and a half. But all of that changes at the beginning of chapter 5. And God uses two prophets who are mentioned in verse 1, Haggai and Zechariah, to bring about the change. Now, as you may know, both Haggai and Zechariah have a book named after them in the Old Testament. What you may not know is that much of the content of those two books is centered on this historical moment that is taking place right here in Ezra chapter 5. In both Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets encouraged the returning exiles to finish the work of rebuilding the temple. Now, truth be known, if you've read Zechariah before, you know that Zechariah's preaching and prophesying is a bit abstract in nature, not always the easiest to follow. But Haggai, on the other hand, is much more straightforward. 
And we learn in Haggai chapter 1 that Haggai reprimanded the exiles for their failure to finish the work of rebuilding the temple. In Haggai chapter 1, Haggai takes the people of God to task. He takes them to task for prioritizing other things over the building of the temple. According to Haggai, the people of God were prioritizing the building of their own houses. They were pursuing their own economic and agricultural success, while the house of God remained in ruins. Now, no doubt, the people of God would have used the opposition that they were facing as the excuse for not rebuilding the temple, but Haggai and Zechariah were having none of it. They reminded the people of their true priority, spiritual renewal, and they encouraged the people to get on with it. You may have paused here for a while, but get to work rebuilding the temple. Now, if you've read Zechariah and Haggai, in particular Haggai, it's pretty obvious that these two prophets directly and openly challenged and even rebuked the people of God. But it's worth noting in verses 1 to 2 of chapter 5 here that these prophets were doing so in the name of the Lord. In other words, this message was from God. And furthermore, while the prophets may have rebuked, may have rebuked they did so while remaining with the people and supporting them, which is the language that's used here in verse 2. That they were rebuking, yes, but they were also remaining with them and supporting them. And I think it's important for us to note that. In the technologically driven world that we live in, we oftentimes associate rebukes with cold-heartedness. Many people today make their rebukes from behind a keyboard, and they do it anonymously. And because of that, when we think of rebuking, we think of someone being put in their place. But the content of the books of Haggai and Zechariah remind us that rebuke doesn't always have to be a cold-hearted action. Haggai and Zechariah rebuke the people for their failure to rebuild the temple, but it's clear they're doing so out of love. Because throughout the rest of the books, they encourage them, they exhort them, they assure them that the work that they're needing to do is important. And as Ezra 5 reminds us, they also stayed with them and supported them. So don't confuse all rebuke with cold-heartedness. Now to be sure, a lot of people do rebuke out of hatred because they do have cold hearts and they're filled with disdain. But sometimes the thing we need most is a loving rebuke. In the case of Ezra chapter 5, that's what happens. It seems that both Haggai and Zechariah were able to give a loving rebuke, and that's what the people needed. Because in verse 2, in response to the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah, the people of God resumed the work of rebuilding the temple. And the fact that they do so gets the attention of some government officials, which brings us now to verses 3 to 5. Ezra chapter 5, verse 3 says this, At the same time, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. So Judah was within the province of beyond the river the Persian province of beyond the river. And the governor of that province, Tatnai, takes notice of the rebuilding work of the temple. Now, I think it's worth noting that throughout chapter 5 and 6, Tatnai's tone is much different than the tone of the opponents in chapter 4. Whereas the opponents in chapter 4 were intent on maligning and discouraging the people of God, it seems that Tatnai is just trying to do his job. As the provincial governor, it was his duty to make sure that nothing was being done to usurp the king, who at this time is now Darius. By the way, Darius's reign in the first two years was very tumultuous, and there was plenty of attempts at rebellion. And so it's natural that one of his provincial governors would be on the lookout, which is why Tatnai asked the questions that he does in verses 3 to 4. All right, who told you that you could build this temple? And by the way, what are your names? 
Now, even if Tat and I wasn't asking these questions because he's out to get the people of God, you could see how these questions would have been intimidating for God's people. Anytime someone is asking your name and asking your name so that they can then report it to the authorities, this gives you reason for concern. So Tat and I's questions, I have no doubt, would have been troubling for the people of God. But again, it does seem to be fair to Tat and I that he's just trying to do his job. Because as verse 5 informs us, he doesn't actually put a stop to the work. He lets the people keep rebuilding the temple while he reaches out to Darius to confirm that the people of God actually have authority to rebuild. And we see that reaching out to Darius in verses 6 to 17. All right, so continuing now, chapter 5, verse 6 through 17, we read this. This is a copy of the letter that Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows, to Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It's being built with huge stones and timbers laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Shezbazar, whom he'd made governor. And he said to him, take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that's in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then the Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God that's in Jerusalem. And from that time until now, it's been in building and it's not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus, the king, for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in this manner. So in essence, here's what's happening in verses 6 to 17. Tatnai sends the letter to King Darius and tells Darius that the Jewish people are rebuilding the temple and claiming that Cyrus gave them the authority to do so. And so Tatnai is writing to Darius and he's asking the question, is what they're saying true? Did Cyrus really give the people the authority to rebuild the temple? Now keep in mind the rebuilding of the temple had started around 536 B.C., but it's now roughly 520, about 16 years later. And the work of the temple had been on hold for at least 10 to 15 years. And so it would have been natural for Tat and I to wonder, did they actually have authority all that long time ago? In fact, Tat and I may have not even been around when Cyrus made his decree. He's wanting to verify, did this actually happen? Did Cyrus actually say this? I mean, think of it this way. If you're a dad, or you can flip this if you're a mom, but if you're a dad and your kid, your kid comes to you and says, mom said I can do this. And whatever they're telling you is something you're not sure that mom actually approves of. How would you handle that as a dad? Well, I think what you should do probably is verify. All right, let me just check with mom. Let me make sure we're on the same page here. I want to make sure I'm not getting the wool pulled over my eyes. And it seems like that's what Tatnai is doing in this case. He doesn't shut down the work immediately, but he wants to make sure, do they really have permission from mom? Or in this case, do they have permission from Cyrus? So he reaches out to Darius. Can you confirm this? Can you check the records and make sure what they're saying lines up? 
In chapter 6, 1 to 12, we find the response that Darius gives to this request. So let's pick up the story now, chapter 6, verses 1 to 12. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia, and the houses of the archives were the documents restored. And in Ekbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree. Concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, and its breadth, breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that's in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that's in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now therefore, Tatnai, governor of the province beyond the river, Sheth- Shethar, Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elder of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons." Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this, or to destroy this house of God that's in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree, let it be done with all diligence. So in verses 1 to 5 here, Darius does his research, and he confirms Cyrus really did give the people authority to rebuild the temple. And then in verses 6 to 12, Darius gives instructions to Tatnai in light of that confirmation. And his instructions are remarkable. First, he tells Tatnai, stay out of the way. Let the people of God rebuild. Then he tells Tatnai that the rebuilding should also be financed from the royal revenue. In other words, Darius is like, send me the bill, bro. I got it. And as if that's crazy enough, Darius also tells Tatnai to make sure that daily, daily, the people are given bulls, rams, sheep, grain, salt, oil, whatever they need to make sacrifices. So get this, Darius doesn't just refinance the building, he's also willing to pay for daily sacrifices. Furthermore, Darius even issues a decree that if anyone tries to stop the rebuilding of the temple, they should be punished. To quote Darius' decree from verse 11, if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. Now, I don't know about you, that seems like a fairly serious punishment to me. Impalement, not great. And even though no one knows exactly what it means for someone's house to be made into a dunghill, I think we can all agree it's probably not a good thing. So in summary here, Darius' response doesn't just confirm the truthfulness that the people have the authority to rebuild, but also he goes beyond that. And he offers to finance the rebuilding, to finance daily sacrifices, and he even threatens to punish anyone who tries to hinder their project. It's a crazy turn of events from where we were at the end of chapter 4. If you didn't know how this story ended, and you were reading chapter 4, you might have come to the conclusion, perhaps they'll never finish the rebuilding of the temple. But now here, by the end of chapter 6, not only is the pagan king giving them authority to rebuild, he's also paying for it paying for their sacrifices, and protecting them. 
In light of Darius' response, the people finished the work. This is what we see in verses 13 to 15. Verse 13, Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. So almost 70 years, almost exactly 70 years after the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, the second temple is finished around 516 B.C. And as this happens, the people's response is simply one of joy and worship and commemorating the Passover, remembering how God had delivered his people in the past out of Egypt and he's now delivering them again. We see this celebration at the end of the chapter, verses 16 to 22. Verse 16, the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it's written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, they returned exiles, kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanliness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So undoubtedly, especially given the way the chapter is ending here, we are meant to see that this is a moment of great victory for the people of God. And as we study the film or rewind the chapter, I think it's pretty obvious that there's one overarching truth that helps us to make sense of this victory. And that one overarching truth is simply this, that God is sovereignly protecting and providing for his people in order to accomplish his purposes and his plans. In the first six chapters of Ezra, there are a lot of characters mentioned. Chapter 2 in particular has a lot of names mentioned. But it's clear that there's one character driving the whole story in the book of Ezra. And that character is God. And while that's very apparent in the first four chapters, it's even more apparent here in chapters 5 and 6. Look again at the way the passage begins in chapter 5, verse 1. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Jude and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Yes, Haggai and Zechariah prophesy, and yes, God uses that greatly to start the work of rebuilding the temple. But make no mistake about it, they were prophesying in the name of God, and it was God who was over them. God is the one directing the events here that lead to the temple, the building of the temple getting restarted. He's also the one protecting and watching over his people throughout the chapter, and throughout these two chapters. Remember in verses 3 and 4 of of chapter 5, Tatnai is asking some pretty threatening questions. Who gave you the authority to rebuild? Give me some names. Who's involved in this? But as the author of Ezra wants to remind us, Tatnai may have been asking those questions, but God is the one who's watching over them. In fact, look at the end of verse 3 where we see the question through verse 5. Again, this is Tatnai. Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked him this. What are the names of the men who are building this building? But here it is in verse 5. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. 
And they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. So Tat and I may have been asking some scary questions here, but the author wants us to know God had his people's back. His eye was on them. He is the one who is superintending all the events of this chapter. And that's something the author makes very clear to us in the latter half of chapter 6. Look again at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 6. Verse 14, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes king of Persia. And the house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. So in order to carry out his plans, and this is what the author is saying in verses 14 and 15, God uses his prophets. He uses his people and their commitment to rebuild. He uses the leaders of the people. He even uses pagan government officials. As the last verse in chapter 6 reminds us, God is the one who turned the heart of the king to aid the people. So understand this. God is the one orchestrating all the events in the book of Ezra. And if you're playing back the tape of Ezra 5 and 6, this is the thing that should stick out to you the most. That God is sovereignly protecting and providing for his people in order to accomplish his purposes and plans. In this case, through a series of a whole bunch of different circumstances, he protects and provides so the temple can be rebuilt. But listen, the purpose of film work, or in this case studying the text, is not just to rehash what happened, which is what we've done so far. But it's also to think, well, how might we apply this going forward? In the case of football film, you're thinking, how do we play the next game? In the case of reading Ezra 5 and 6, you're thinking, how does God's victory here, or the victory that he gives to the people, how does this translate for us going forward? What are the implications of their victory for us? What are the lessons we might learn from their moment of triumph? Now, I'm sure there are a lot of ways we could answer that question, but I, just, I want to point out three huge lessons I think that we can learn from Ezra 5 and 6. In light of the victory that they have, here are three lessons I think we can learn. First, Trust God's sovereign hand to providentially direct all things according to his purposes and for our good. Trust God's sovereign hand to providentially direct all things according to his purposes and for our good. Now I want you to think for a moment again about the, 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 the event that's happening at the beginning of chapter 5. Tapnai is asking the question, he's asking the people, who gave you the authority to rebuild? What are the names of the people building? For the people of God, Again, as we've already alluded to, that had to be a scary moment. Put yourself in their shoes for a second. He wants them to prove you have authority to rebuild. He wants them to know, or he wants to know their names. He's asking some questions that would have been intimidating. When I was a pastor in New York, our church got involved in a really weird lawsuit. The name of our church was New Hope Fellowship, and apparently there was another church with the same name in New York City that had failed to pay their rent or otherwise broken their contract with the city. And so the city of New York sued our church, thinking we were that New Hope Fellowship. So on two or three occasions, I had to take the train and go on the subway to Brooklyn and try to prove to the court officials, we're not that New Hope Fellowship, we're a different one. But here's the thing, even though I knew that we had truth on our side, and even though I knew there were documents out there proving that we were correct, it was still intimidating to go in front of the court officials. And it still felt very uncertain that they would find the documents needed to prove that we were telling the truth. So listen, I get how the questioning of Tat 9 verses 3 to 4 probably felt very concerning for the people of God. Yes, the people of God had truth on their side. And yes, there was documentation out there. But would Darius actually find that documentation and would they be vindicated? So no doubt when Tat 9 begins asking these questions, okay, who gave you the authority to rebuild? What are your names? 
that had to be concerning. But think about what comes about as a result of those questions. Because Tatnai asks those questions and reaches out to Darius, not only does Darius confirm the truthfulness of what they say, but he ends up financing the rebuilding. He ends up financing the sacrificial system. He even offers to protect the people of God. I'm sure the people of God had been praying for a good response from Darius, but the end result had to be far more than they could imagine. God overwhelmingly answered their prayers, and the fact that he did so should be encouraging for us this morning. I think sometimes we see the direction of the world and we wonder, where is this going? More personally, sometimes I think we see the direction of our own lives and we wonder, where is this going? But in Ezra 5 and 6, we are reminding, we are reminded it's always going somewhere. God is sovereign over all things and he is providentially directing all things for his glory and for our good. I think it's important for us to understand the providential nature of God's sovereignty. It's not just that God is sovereign, it's that he's providentially directing all things for our good and for his glory. And that distinction between sovereignty and providence is an important one. John Piper explains the difference this way. He says, God's sovereignty is his right and power to do whatever he pleases. God's providence is his wise and purposeful sovereignty. In other words, to be sovereign just means that he has the right to rule over over everything. But to be providential means that he's caring for us and that he has a purpose in exercising his sovereignty. And what we're saying here in light of Ezra 5 and 6 is that not only is God sovereign, but he's also providentially directing all things for his glory and for our good. In Ezra 5 and 6, what seems like a major detour in Tatnai's questioning, the people are probably thinking, oh boy, here we go again. What seems like a detour actually ends up being a providential turn for the better. And what I want to communicate to you this morning is that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you can be confident that God is providentially directing all things in your life too. Now in saying that, I'm not suggesting that everything that happens in your life is good. It's not good that you struggle with sin. It's not good that someone you love died. It's not good that you're sick or that someone you love is sick. All those things are evidence of life in a broken world, and it's okay for us to lament that brokenness and not pretend as if everything in life is cotton candy and rainbows. So I'm not saying life is easy, but what I am saying is this, that God is at work in the mess. He's at work in the brokenness to providentially work for your good and for his glory. When I look back on my own life, some of the hardest things that I've had to face are the things that God has used to most sharpen and shape me for his glory. Without the trials we've gone through as a family over the last four years, I wouldn't be who I am. Now, that's not to say that I've arrived, that I've got it all figured out. In fact, my wife and kids could easily attest to this. I am still a work in progress. But God has providentially been working through our trials to shape me, and I would argue in the end, grow me. As evidenced by what we see here in Ezra 5 and 6, though, in a million other places in the Bible, this is what God does. So I don't know what what you've got going on in your life right now. I don't know what stresses you're facing. I don't know what anxieties are overwhelming you, but what I do know is this. You can trust him. You can trust him. You can trust that if you are his child, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ and you have the spirit dwelling in you, he is working all things for your good and for his glory. So I think that's the first lesson we can learn from Ezra 5 and 6. We can trust him. We can trust his sovereign hand. Lesson number two, we can look to his word or we should look to his word for encouragement and instruction. The pivotal moment of Ezra 5 and 6, I think, occurs in the first two verses of chapter 5. Look at those first two verses here. 
Chapter 5, verse 1 says this. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem, and the name of the God of Israel was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that's in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So what is it that gets the people moving and rebuilding the temple? What is it that jumpstarts their obedience? It's the word of God, proclaimed by the prophets of God. And make no mistake, this is a pattern throughout Scripture. To quote commentator Derek Kidner, like every spiritual advance from Abraham's to the missionary expansion in Acts, the venture of Ezra 5 and 6 begins with a word from the Lord. The reality of Ezra 5 and 6 is that the people of God had stopped building because they were afraid and discouraged. And it's the word of God that brings them out of their discouragement and fear and gets them moving forward. But again, this is a pattern we see throughout Scripture. It's the Word of God that continually allows us to overcome our fears and our doubts. And this is not just true in a big picture sense in terms of what we read in Scripture. It's also true in terms of what we experience in our daily lives. Earlier this week, I was just feeling a little bit overwhelmed and discouraged. There's just a lot going on in our family and the church and the world but as I was reading the word of God, specifically Psalm 55, God used Psalm 55:22 to help snap me out of my funk. The content of that verse is this, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. As I was reading that verse, God convicted me. I was not casting my burdens on the Lord. I was trying to bear them myself. I was trying to figure out all my issues myself. You cannot be sustained living in that way. As Psalm 55 reminds us, he will sustain you, but you have to cast your burdens on him. And so God used that verse that day to kind of awaken me and get me going back on the right path. But here's the thing. Well, that's what I experienced on that day. I've experienced the same thing over and over and over again in my Christian life. God uses his word to sustain and encourage us. And sometimes, as is, as is the case in Ezra 5 and 6, he uses his word to correct us. You would be hard-pressed to describe the message of Haggai or Zechariah as a pat on the back. Haggai and Zechariah are not coming along like, you guys are doing a great job, keep it up. No, you would probably describe the book of Haggai and Zechariah less like a pat on the back and more like a kick in the pants. But hear this, sometimes as the people of God, we need a kick in the pants. And that's the beautiful thing about God's word. It corrects, it encourages, it sustains, it teaches, and at times it rebukes. It's living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. And just like the people of Ezra 5 and 6 needed the word of God to jumpstart their obedience, we too desperately need the word of God in our lives to shape us and mold us and get us to be the type of people that we want to be. Listen, if you're discouraged and downtrodden, let me just encourage you this morning. You need the word of God. As Old Testament professor J. Gordon McConville said it, there's always an effective answer to discouragement in the bold proclamation of the word of God. Listen, church, I understand that sometimes when you wake up on Sunday mornings, it just feels like it would be nice to sleep for a few more hours. I'm the guy who preaches, and sometimes I feel that way. I also understand that there are some times where you get up on a Sunday and you think there's this other stuff that needs to be done. It feels like a bigger priority. Let me just plead with you here and encourage you in light of what we read in Ezra 5 and 6. You need the proclamation of God's word to sustain you. Now, to be sure, you need it during the week, too. And all of us who are serious about following Jesus should be committed to regularly getting word intake throughout the week, through reading the Bible, meditating on it, listening to podcasts, listening to preaching, talking with other Christians. We need that, too. 
But there is something about us being gathered together collectively to hear the word of God that spurs us on. And sometimes it challenges Frankly, there are times where the Word of God says things that we don't want to hear. But we need to hear it. It's easy to find people who will tell you what you want to hear. But when we encounter the Word of God, we often get what we need to hear. In Ezra 5 and 6, it was the Word of God that encouraged and challenged and rebuked the people. They needed the Word of God to get them going. And hear me, so do we. So that's lesson two from Ezra 5 and 6. Look to the Word of God for encouragement and instruction. Lesson number three, celebrate God's faithfulness and goodness. I want to draw your attention to a couple of verses here at the end of chapter 6. Look first at verses 15 and 16. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Chapter 6, verse 22. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Clearly, the response of God's people to the rebuilding of the temple was one of spontaneous joy. They celebrated God's work. And to be honest, I think we can learn from them here in the way that they respond because I don't think we're very good at celebrating God's work. Earlier this week, I was listening to an interview with a professional football player. And he talked about how their team would dance in the locker room after they won a game. And then he went on to say that getting a victory in the NFL is really hard and it's worth celebrating. And the more I thought about what he said, I think he's probably right. It probably is worth celebrating. But here's the thing. Given what God has done for us and given what he's doing even now, how is it that we don't celebrate more? I mean, think about this in the big picture. We were dead, but now we're alive. We were lost, but now we're fine. We were blind, but now we can see. It's all because of what Jesus did for us. Jesus died on the cross so that we could live. He hung on the cross to pay for our sins. He rose from the dead and conquered death. And those who trust in him can have their sins forgiven, peace with God, and everlasting life. How is it that we don't celebrate that more? Furthermore, he's at work even today. We have much to celebrate, and not just in what he's done in the past, but what he's doing now. If ever there's a time where you come on Sunday mornings and you feel like, well, this is, this is unexciting and it just feels dead. Well, it's not because we don't have reason to celebrate. It's because we've lost track of what to celebrate. Jesus died for our sins. His spirit lives in this. He's at work even today. I'm convinced that one of the greatest problems in the church today is not, not that we need to read our Bibles more or get more involved in small groups or be more intentional in discipleship or bolder in evangelism. Now, I'm a huge proponent of all those things. Don't get me wrong. But I think one of the greatest problems in the church today is that we've lost sight of how good the good news is. Jesus took your place. How can we not celebrate that? How can we not be filled with joy? If NFL players feel the need to dance after victory, how can we be unmoved in thinking about the work of Christ? We have much to celebrate. And just like the victory of Ezra 5 and 6 prompted spontaneous worship and joy and celebration, I would argue that we too should celebrate the work of Christ. So in light of the game film from Ezra 5 and 6, and the great victory that we read about in these chapters, let me just give you some encouragement this morning, just in summary. First of all, trust God's sovereign hand to providentially direct all things for His good and for, your, or for our good and for His glory. Secondly, look to His word for encouragement and instruction and lastly, celebrate his goodness and faithfulness because he is good 
And we have a lot to celebrate. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. And we pray that we would see it as cause for celebration. That we would be reminded that you are a good God who gives victory to your people. And that we would learn from the victory here in Ezra 5 and 6. That we can trust you. That we should look to your word for encouragement. And that we have much to celebrate. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.